I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author and professor emeritus at Springfield College, Dr. Joanne Silver-Jones. Her new book is Surviving Traumatic Brain Injury, Headstrong, and the uh, title of the book is Headstrong. Uh, As a longtime civil rights activist and professor working towards racial equality, Dr. Joanne Silver-Jones was elated about the election of our first black president. While she was in Washington, D.C. to celebrate and witness Barack Obama's inauguration in 2009, Jones was walking from the D.C. metro stop to her daughter's residence when she was randomly and violently attacked by a man with a hammer who ran off with her purse. Part vivid memoir of trauma and hope and and part reflection on our country's systemic racism within our education and criminal justice systems. Her book is a searing portrayal of one woman's visceral fight for survival and inspiring road to recovery. In addition to teaching, Jones has consulted with public and private organizations in relation to diversity, inclusiveness, and excellence. Welcome to the show, Joanne. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much. Well, I, I, first I... I read your book. It's very inspiring. I have to admit it's depressing in places, uh, but it has a real uplifting quality. Um, can you take us back in, now you're 73 years old, back to the time Correct. when the assault happened, back to Washington, D.C., 2009, and the night of the assault. What did happen? Sure. Um, I had just gotten off the metro, and I typically don't take the metro when I go to my daughter's house, but uh, Washington was just uh, all aglow with the inauguration, and I wanted to be part of it in all ways. So I got off the metro stop, the really cold night, and my daughter's house is only about 10 minutes from the metro stop, was walking toward her house, and just as I could see it, I felt something touch my head. I thought it might be a pebble. I looked up uh, toward a roof, and I... Uh, for just a fraction of a second, I saw the face of a man, and I thought I was going to die. And I don't remember anything else uh, after that except little uh, pieces of information that I'm not sure are even accurate. They are stuck in my mind, but there's really no cooperation for it. And uh, the person beat me with a hammer. My skull was fractured and both hands fractured, and he took my purse and put the bloody hammer in my purse and dropped the purse with the hammer two blocks away. And the hammer was placed on a bank envelope that had $400 in cash in it. So I never believed that this was a robbery because there was all this cash there. I I have no idea what it was. It seemed like a random act of craziness. Uh, And I've spent the last 10 years in various forms of recovery and building a new life. All right, let's talk about the recovery and building a new life because I think that's one, obviously, I am assuming that's why you wrote the book and you do write it from not a medical perspective, but from the perspective of you, the victim, from this random act of violence and the emotional toll, the physical toll, but also the emotional toll 
it mm-hmm. took and continues to take on you, your family, your wife, your daughter, everybody in your your friend, your colleagues, all of those people. So I think that's what, to me, that's what's unique about your book. And you describe it as the mm-hmm. before, uh, the before and after, before the assault and after the assault. Um, right. So what is it that we need to know? I know you start from the beginning that you weren't even sure what happened, uh, you know, and, and so that in itself was an enigma to you in terms of what happened during the assault and, and even right afterwards. Um, right. Yeah. Well, the, the two uh, major things that happened to me physically and that I, I still live with, one is severe traumatic brain injury and the other is post-traumatic stress syndrome. So at the time of the assault, my body did what bodies do, is uh, rush into survival mode. And that mercifully also uh, seems to take uh, take memory away and everything in the body is focused on how to survive. Uh, and I have lived with... Uh, the results of having particularly my frontal lobe smashed and lost uh, functioning in part of my brain and also uh, a very strong fear reflex that continues. When I was uh, able to read again, which took a couple years before I could focus, stay awake, and uh, even care about anything, I wanted to find something that talked about somebody's experience. I was going through this unknown, invisible, but very, very difficult experience, and I could find medical books and psychological books. I could, you know, I wanted to understand it, but mostly I wanted to know what the experience was, and I, I couldn't find anything. I found very little anyway that that helped me. So, my the book that I wrote is partly in response to that of is what does it feel to go through it, and the reality is, as you said, it doesn't just happen to the victim; it happens to everybody around uh, the victim, and that also lingers. The memories, the helplessness, the vision of the person. I didn't see myself. I didn't look in the mirror for a week, and I was horrified by what I saw. And uh, I, I took some time before there was any resemblance between what I saw in a mirror and who I thought myself to be. So it's also a book that I hope people who uh, have loved ones who have traumatic brain injury, who have loved ones who have experienced and are experiencing PTSD, can get some guidance and help from. Uh, it's just it's a terrible uh, burden for everybody. And I think one, I'm going to interrupt you because I think one of the things sure. that really stuck with me in having worked in a settings with as a social worker in a rehab hospital that you keep emphasizing it isn't something that happens and then it's over and then you heal and then it goes away. But it, it's your life forever. I mean, and how it's a constant. It's always there. It's always part of I mean, you are always adapting and always confronting uh, the different kinds of issues as you live your life. I don't know. That's what struck me. And I, and the first part of it is, and 
was that you talked about that very often I think that victims of whatever kind of trauma uh, that don't perhaps even aren't aware of or don't accept that whole area of self-absorption which you talk about that mm-hmm. it was really all about you and it was and, and because of the trauma um, difficult to really let other people's feelings or empathies kind of in, invade your space. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. And I, I didn't even realize that for some time, that uh, my every day, every moment was really taken with, uh, initially it was taken with, uh, could I get out of bed and walk to a chair? There were pretty significant limitations. Uh, and then there was a period of being depressed where I didn't really care about much of anything and was irritable, uh, didn't didn't really want, I, I didn't want people to fuss over me and then I would be angry if I didn't get fussed over. I could not find uh, any part of myself that could be comfortable. And after several years, uh, my daughter mentioned something about how the only conversation I have is about me, what doctor I saw, and this and that. And uh, so did my wife. And so I began to kind of be uh, awakened to that reality. Uh, and it really shook me to think that I'd spent all this time not with really much awareness, not only of people around me, but of what they were going through, too, as a result. So I began to be able to focus more and of course the more I could focus outside of myself the better I felt to not be so self-consumed. It's a hard balance because as you say it never ends it's always there. It, traumatic brain injury does not go away uh, and I continue to have experiences like getting very tired. I have to be careful about uh, my energy, and it's difficult after 10 years now to tell people, well, I can't do that. I'm so tired, or I can't go into this restaurant. It's too noisy, and it's like, uh, it's been 10 years already, you know. Aren't you over it? Uh, I, I won't get over it, but I'm learning how to live with it, and I'm learning how to speak to people without being uh, annoyed, without being sharp to realize that um, it's a combination of not knowing and trying other people trying to be kind and not quite knowing what to do. And the need yeah, I think for, that's important uh, because, always, you know, that your expectations for other people, uh, thinking that they should understand or telling you, I, I know in the book you, all, you talk about how they'll say, well, you look great, and you're thinking... <laughs> You don't get it, uh, and I—that's—I uh, I might look great, but I feel awful. And you should be, and whoever it is who's talking to you, they should be able to understand that. And some people do, don't—they just don't understand. Other people are so uncomfortable, they don't know what to say. So I guess that was—it seemed to me—in order to connect with everybody, yeah. yeah, it was a growing process for you as well as those around you. But. Absolutely, and I've talked with people who've had other kinds of tragedies in their life, and there's a similar pattern. It's very hard for many people to uh, be around somebody who's in a state of grief or a state of pain and not know what to do, and that's partly why at the end I put some suggestions of, of what would be helpful, and it's okay to say I don't know what to do. 
it's, uh, it, it will continue, and the discomfort of other people tends to come out in wanting whatever it is to be all better. So people would say, oh, you look great, or I, mean, I did write this book, and I can speak in different contexts. And then I hear, well, I, you know, I think you're just fine. And I think one of the um, major issues with that is that there are so many people in our society with traumatic brain injury. The numbers are staggering. And to not be aware of what the signs and symptoms are and the longevity, I think is uh, it's very unfortunate if one is in the helping professions. I noticed it immediately when I went back to teaching. Uh, for a short time, how uh, much stress and trauma there was in the classroom that I really wasn't that aware of before. Uh, And so it's really, I think it's a public health crisis with accidents and sports and... Now school shootings and shootings and, and, I mean, we're having, it seems to be a... It happens every day, the trauma, these kinds of, you know, the similar things that have happened to you. Uh, even Absolutely. happening on mass, uh, you know. Uh, some you touched on this, but I, this is so important because uh, y- your wife, your primary caregiver, and, and that's a huge issue today, um, bears a, a big burden. Maybe that the person who was victimized doesn't realize, and um, some of the the anger that they feel uh, that this happened. And I, maybe you could touch it, talk a little bit about, like, Debbie, how she, because you're one person one day, and then the next day, you, you, you're the same person, but because of this trauma, everything changes, uh, and it changes a relationship, yeah. too. Yeah. It does. Uh, and I, again, I didn't think for quite some time that she was also being affected, and she still is. She worries if I go out, uh, maybe I'll have a seizure, maybe I'll get lost, maybe I'll fall and hit my head. Uh, It's a kind of constant uh, weariness and wariness that she has. And initially, there were many people saying, you know, what to Debbie, you know, what can I do for you to help you? And she didn't have an answer. I'm not sure there's a good answer except for many people to know that it's the caregiver that is also suffering, and I am extremely fortunate to have had a wonderful and dedicated and committed caregiver. So many people don't have that and uh, suffer alone and don't know what to do and also don't know if what they're going through is normal. I hear from a number of people who have a TBI who say, I'm always tired. Is that normal? What's wrong with me? So there's not uh, there's not a way to even know what they're going through. So at least Debbie understood, and she could take off for a while, or at some point I could apologize and we could talk about it. And over time, I've been able to get on right combination of medications that have helped, and to be able to do things to learn how to help myself which is, for me, another big part of probably a lot of issues, but this is what I deal with, that a big part of the responsibility for healing is mine, and it's every day, 
and there are things that I do that I need to do. Uh, otherwise, uh, I will not have as fulfilling a life as I can have given the limitations, and other people have to step in. And I think yep. that's an unfair burden, an unfair expectation. But I think you got the, I mean, in the book, you talk about the kinds of help that you got from the from the therapist, the psychiatrist, OT, PT, all of that combined mind-body uh, has helped you, obviously. And those resources have to, yeah, should be available to all of us, to everyone. Uh, one of the things um, I know at, at work, and your work is very, is, cerebral, uh, a professor, a university, but yet you didn't get the kind of support that you needed from the, from the, them, from the administration. Right. That completely uh, uh, surprised me and ultimately overwhelmed me. I thought it would be the simplest of requests that I needed, uh, I needed uh, a time break. Our, the classes that we taught were eight hours uh, a day on a weekend because it was a, an accelerated program for adults, and I could not do two weekends in a row. I, physically, I didn't have the stamina. So I asked to get a course relief, and I would uh, do other things. And when it wasn't granted, I was completely stunned, as were my doctors. And as I write in the book, I fought it uh, until the fighting of it was taking far too much energy. And I've since learned that um, large institutions, particularly hospitals and higher education, are two of the worst in providing uh, accommodation for people with head injuries. It kind of stuns me. Uh, so I could not get an accommodation. And ultimately, I, I just retired. I couldn't were reaching, take that toll on my body. Yeah, because that takes a lot. That's, that's enervating. That takes a lot of energy to get involved in those kinds of disputes, right, with the institution. Um, so I'm assuming you feel, yeah, you made the right choice. So now, you know, kind of maybe um, fast forward, um, what, today, what are you doing right now? What do you recommend to other people, as you say, uh, people with uh, TBIs and post-traumatic stress disorder? What do they do? What are the resources? I know Caring Bridge, who I, they've been on my show too, uh, was, uh, was the one way of sort of getting out all of these emotions uh, for, for Debbie, right? Absolutely. It was really a godsend. She wrote on it every night. and It helped people to know what was going on. It also helped her to do something creative, to write, to express what she was going through. And I think, you know, in a continuation of that, I, I would suggest that people find a way to connect with other people. It's um, TBI and PTSD are invisible. They're very lonely. They're... Uh, very internal kinds of injuries, and it is very important to find groups. There are a lot of groups now that deal with PTSD or TBI. There are a lot of Facebook groups that uh, people can get on to uh, just have other people to talk to and have uh, their own uh, concerns uh, verified, ratified, substantiated, and get some ideas of what to do. 
Uh, and some of the things that are recommended for so many uh, ailments, uh, exercise, eat well, uh, try to find something outside of oneself to do, uh, whether it's the volunteer or walk a dog or whatever, to find a life beyond the life that's consumed by TBI and uh, PTSD. Of course, there are limitations, but uh, it's so important to make other connections. Yeah, well, you say, you know, understand your limitations, what they are. And I think there was a point in the book where you sort of, where you emphasize that. And you said, well, I just, here I'm lying in bed, sitting on the green couch. And, you know, it's time for me to get up and go and do something given my limitations and who I am and what I can do. Um, and that that was important for you. Um, the other thing, uh, your, your, um, your dog, Rocket, because... Mm. He, was a great source of comfort to you, and uh, I mean, I think that to me it seemed was some was a part of the your healing process. Um, um, and he, he, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, there's there have been some wonderful stories about dogs and particularly vets with PTSD. Uh, I think Rocket in many ways. Um, uh, I would say save my life. That might be too extreme, but uh, I had to get out of bed. I had to get outside because he had to walk, and I had to pay some attention to him. And he was so in the moment. Uh, he, I, I got so much joy, and he also took a lot of worry from me because he would hear and he would see what I didn't, and I could walk without feeling that I had to look all around me and start to enjoy my surroundings. I didn't realize, uh, again, I was, I've thought of myself, but I didn't realize that Rocket had his own trauma and I, I didn't know, I just didn't know and didn't really pay attention to that. And he, uh, the more he protected me, the more his own aggressions came out. And I realize now that when I first met Rocket, I was uh, anxious all the time. It wasn't that I was periodically anxious and so he would pay attention. I would uh, react if a leaf touched me. So it was tough on him. But he was a miracle dog. And I have another dog now who I worship you know, one of the things, we don't have that much time left, but you talk about, and I think this is so important, uh, and maybe these are your words, the arbitrary time limits of recovery from trauma, and that mm-hmm. arbitra- mm-hmm. That, that's really difficult because you don't know what's going to happen next. There's really no formula for it, and I think one of your, I don't know if it was a neurologist, but one of your doctors said, you know, yes, you developed tinnitus, you developed seizures, stuff happens or emanates from that trauma years later. And so you don't know what's going to hit you next. I think that's really something that must be difficult to, 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 um, to deal with. It is. And I have tried to put in practice the idea of living every day. What's really helped me was to take courses in, in mindful meditation uh, so that I can learn how to be in the moment and not worry about what might happen 
because there are so many things that have happened. It's not, you know, it's easy to think, what if, what if? And so I'm really learning how to just be in the moment that I'm in, enjoy what's around me. And that's been a lot of work, and there are a lot of places to get help with that. And I'd say that was a really significant part of my recovery, and it still is. It's something that I practice all the time of just where am I, what's good right now. Joanne, we have two minutes left, so can you give us a website, uh, or is there a website? Uh, We can buy the book, I assume, on Amazon or bookstores everywhere, and is there a website that you want to share with us that talks about the work you're doing or um, information that we more more information we can get on uh, surviving a traumatic brain injury? Yes. uh, My website is lowercase Joanne Jones Author. Dot com, and I have um, some blog posts that talk about it and some resources posted, and I keep updating it all the time. Well, the title of the book, again, and is Headstrong. I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I, uh, I will respond to anybody who contacts me through uh, my website, and I think I have my email address there, too, so I welcome any connections, and I've been asked by a number of people if they could just talk to me, and I'm happy to do that. Great. Headstrong, Surviving a Traumatic Brain Injury, and the author is Dr. Joanne Silver-Jones. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much. I mean, uh, you're, you, you, as I said in the beginning of the interview, you are an inspiration for so many people who are going through the same thing, and um, so your book is a very important resource, and uh, I advise my listeners to read it. Okay. Thank you so much for talking with me. Great. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> 